Are all parts of the Bible equally important? This is the Deep Questions Podcast, and I'm your host, Chase Thompson, a pastor and writer in Salinas, California, and today we're talking about what's most important in the Bible. And we're back. Sorry for the unplanned hiatus, but things should be more or less back to normal, and you should look for at least an episode a week going forward, Lord willing. Before we dive into today's topic, I do want to tell you that the church I pastor here in sunny Salinas, California in Monterey County, eight miles away from the beach, so, you know, a great place to visit, we are having a conference this summer, June 24th through the 26th, where Mike Lacona, Dr. Michael Lacona, is going to be joining us. The name of the conference is Reasons to Believe. You can sign up for that conference on our website, the church website, that is, vbcsalinas.org. That's vbcsalinas.org. And if you forget that, you can always come to deepquestionspod.com, and we have a link there to it. Dr. Lacona is going to be talking to us about why he believes that Jesus raised from the dead, how we can better communicate those truths to people, And I think it's going to be awesome. Uh, Dr. Lacona has written several books. I have several of his books. They're really, really good. He was trained by a personal hero of mine, Dr. Gary Habermas, one of the foremost uh, philosophers and apologetics teachers in the world. And Dr. Lacona is a guy you can find on YouTube debating people like uh, Dr. Bart Ehrman and other critics of Christianity And he's just fantastic. He's a fantastic teacher and speaker. It's going to be super engaging. We're looking forward to it. And in a couple of episodes uh, of the podcast here very soon, we haven't got the date nailed down yet, but it's coming. Dr. Lacona is going to be joining us for an episode here on the Deep Questions podcast. So today we consider a question that on the surface has a pretty obvious answer. Of course, all scripture is important. Well, more than important, really. In what is likely the last letter of Paul, written shortly before his death, the apostle is going to tell us something stirring and crucial about God's word. In 2 Timothy 3, 16-17, he says, All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, the Christian Standard Bible says all scripture is, quote, inspired by God. The King James Version says all scripture is given by the inspiration of God. Of course, both of those things is true. Scripture is inspired by God. It's given by the inspiration of God. But when we actually look at the original Greek of the New Testament, we see this incredible word. It's one of my favorite Greek words of all. Theopneustus, not easy to pronounce. I probably didn't do a great job of it there, but Theopneustus is a word that is only used once in all of the Bible. And that means theologians are going to call it a hypox legomenon. That's a word that only appears once in scripture. And these words can be difficult to translate because they're only there one time and we don't necessarily understand their context. But this word in particular is easy to translate. It's quite obvious in its meaning because it's made up of two fairly simple words smashed together. The word theos, which is the Greek word for God, and the word noustos, which is uh, comes from the word meaning uh, wind or breath. So Paul is telling us here that scripture is God-breathed. And the NIV and the, NS, the ESV, actually, 
uh, tell us that that, that all scripture is God-breathed. That means it has its origins, not in humans, but in God. He has inspired his word and he's breathed it out through his people. Paul further tells us that all scripture is profitable, not in a financial sense, of course, but in an overall sense. All scripture is advantageous is another word, a way to translate the word that we translate profitable. All scripture is helpful. It brings completeness to the people of God and equips them to do God's work. I confess and believe this about all scripture. It is all God breathed and it is all profitable, but is it all equally profitable? Is it all equally advantageous or important or helpful? And that's the crux of our deep question today. And I actually think it's an important question that not enough Christians and Christian leaders wrestle with, because when you have the answer to that question, you're going to have the answer to the question, how to best study your Bible. Now, the topic of this episode was sparked uh, by a recent walk I took a couple of weeks ago, where I was listening to the first few chapters of First Chronicles in the Old Testament. And I had to repeatedly shake myself to uh, refocus, because the first nine chapters of First Chronicles are basically one name after another, after another, one geographic location after another, after another. Most of those names and locations are really unfamiliar, even to an advanced Bible scholar, and it's difficult reading. But you know what? Don't take my word for it. I'm going to share a few verses with you. Uh, if you're driving now, be sure to stay awake, right? I'm kind of kidding, but... For instance, 1 Chronicles 1, 1 through 7, this is exactly how it reads. Adam, Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, Noah, Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Japheth's sons, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshach, and Tiras, Gomer's sons, Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Togomrah, Javan's sons, Elisha, Tershish, Ketim, and Rodanim. And it keeps going like that. Well, how about First Chronicles chapter 2, 5 through 10? Pick it up. Perez's sons, Hezron and Hamul, Zerah's sons, Zunri, Ethan, Heman, Kalkal, and Dara, five in all. Carmi's sons, Akar, who brought trouble on Israel when he was unfaithful by taking the things set apart for destruction. Ethan's son, Azariah, Hezron's sons who were born to him, Jeremiel, Ram, and Kelubai. Ram fathered Amenadab, and Amenadab fathered Nashon, a leader of Judah's descendants. Or how about we go to the next chapter, 1 Chronicles 3, 17-20, the sons of Jeconiah the captive, his son Shealtiel, Melchiram, Padiah, Shenazar, Jechamiah, Hoshama, and Nedabiah, Padiah's sons, Zerubbabel and Shemai, Zerubbabel's sons, Meshalem and Hananiah with their sister Shelemith and five others, Hashabah, Ohel, Barakiah, Hasadiah, and Jushab Hased. Or, let's skip ahead, First Chronicles 6, 63-70. The Merarites were assigned by lot twelve towns from the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and Zebulon according to their families. So the Israelites gave these towns and their pasture lands to the Levites. They assigned by lot the towns named above from the tribes of the descendants of Judah, Simeon, and Benjamin. 
Some of the families of the Kohathites were given towns from the tribe of Ephraim for their territory. Shechem, a city of refuge with its pasture lands in the hill city of Ephraim, Gezer and its pasture lands, Jachmiam and its pasture lands, Beth Horan and its pasture lands, Aijalon and its pasture lands, Gath Ramon and its pasture lands, from half the tribe of Manasseh and Ner and its pasture lands, and Biliam and its pasture lands were given to the rest of the families of the Kohathites. First Chronicles 6 has 80 verses, and they are all, or at least almost all, exactly like that, either lists of descendants or lists of where people lived. Now, it might legitimately be the hardest chapter in the Bible to read, and it's also probably the most difficult chapter in the Bible to straight up memorize. If somebody tells you they've memorized the whole Bible, which I can't imagine is possible, always ask him to recite First Chronicles 6 for you, because man, that's a doozy. And so I don't belabor the point and keep reading. Just trust me, or, or verify for yourself, that pretty much all of the first nine chapters of First Chronicles is just like the selections I read above. Long lists with names and places that are quite unfamiliar, even to people who've read the Bible all their life. Passages like these just aren't uh, aren't just limited to First Chronicles one through nine either. Nehemiah chapter seven, Nehemiah chapter ten, Nehemiah chapter eleven and twelve—they're all pretty much like that too. Lots of names and places and lists, and all throughout the Bible we can find sections and chapters like this, and uh, including in places like First Chronicles twenty-six and uh, other passages that contain almost nothing but names, very little narrative. Very little promises of God or descriptions of the nature of God or commands or teachings or really anything I would consider meaty. There's also passages quite different. They're not lists or something like that. But if you look at Job chapter 4 and 5, Job 11, uh, 15, 8, and 20, and beyond, where 100% of the content of those chapters are speeches from one of Job's friends, either Bildad, Zophar, or Eliphaz, and uh, those guys, at the end of the book of Job, God utterly rebukes them for being wrong in just about everything they said. So those chapters of Job, 4, 5, 8, 11, 15, 20, and actually several more, are full of things from Zophar, Bildad, and Eliphaz that aren't true. God tells us they're not true. So is it profitable for us to read those chapters? I mean, you know, in a sense it is, but uh, is it the most profitable thing? What about all of the censuses taken in the book of Numbers or all of the precise and detailed measurements of the temple found in the book of Exodus? Compare chapters like that uh, in some of the passages we read earlier in First Chronicles 9 to, I don't know, a passage like First Corinthians 13, the love chapter. Uh, I'll just read the first few verses there. First Corinthians 16, uh, 13, 1 through 7. If I speak in human or angelic tongues, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give away all my possessions, and if I give away, if I give over my body in order to boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy, is not boastful, is not arrogant, is not rude, is not self-seeking, is not irritable, and does not keep a record of wrongs. 
Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Or how about a selection from the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus is speaking, Matthew 6, 25 through 34. He says, therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body. What you will wear isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they? Can any of you add one moment to his lifespan by worrying? And why do you worry about clothes? Observe how the wild flowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin thread. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was adorned like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown into the furnace tomorrow, won't he do much more for you, you of little faith? So don't worry, saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. Therefore, Don't worry about tomorrow, because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So, when you compare that passage from Matthew 6 and 1 Corinthians 13, we read earlier, with uh, the chapters full of lists in 1 Chronicles 1 through 9, or the other passages in the Bible, like the speeches of Job's friends, you can see quite a contrast. I therefore venture to say that, demonstrably, Some Bible passages, some Bible chapters are more important than others. Now, does that statement cause a shiver to run up your spine? It does mine a little bit. It kind of makes me nervous to say it, honestly, but I nevertheless believe that it is true. I would rather have my kids, and my wife and I have five kids, or people that attend the church I pastor, read the first nine chapters of, I don't know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, etc., then I would have them read the first nine chapters of First Chronicles. Both of those things would take about the same amount of time, but if somebody only has a finite amount of time during the day, and they said, you know, I can read the first nine chapters of Romans or Matthew, or I can read the first nine chapters of First Chronicles, I would say, man, go for Matthew or Romans or Mark or Luke or Acts or whatever over First Chronicles. Now, am I just giving you my opinion here? Well, perhaps to a degree, but I want to point out one very significant situation where Jesus was asked a question that is at least somewhat similar to our question today, only rather than the question being phrased, are some parts of the Bible more important than others? The question he was asked was, what are the most important commands in the Bible? And we read about this episode in Matthew 22. I'll read verses 34 through 39. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they came together and one of them, an expert in the law, asked a question to test him. Teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? And he said to him, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. So here we have an example in Matthew 22 where Jesus basically surveys all of the Old Testament commands and he pulls two to the forefront. He designates them greater than the others and more important than the others. And I note that the 
two commands he pulled forward to share with us come from entirely different books of the Bible. Uh, the command to wholeheartedly love God comes from Deuteronomy 6, and the command to love our neighbors as ourselves is given in Leviticus 19. That said, let me be quite clear, lest you misunderstand me. There are no unimportant parts of Scripture. The lists in First Chronicles 1-9 through have immense historical importance and some spiritual importance as well. The speeches of Job's friends, which God condemns as being wrong, they're not truthful, but they are examples of wrong thinking that we can actually learn from. They are, these guys speaking, as Job notes, they're miserable comforters, and therefore they're negative examples for us not to emulate. In other words, they're kind of cautionary tales, so to speak, and that can be valuable. Here's how not to help somebody that's suffering. Here's good examples of that. The many name lists we find in the Bible and the geographic locations where people settled, all the passages on weights and measures and measurements and all that kind of thing, they're not superfluous. They're not unimportant. They demonstrate the genuine historic nature of the Bible. Real names, real locations, real measurements, not fables or myths or legends. And not only that, some concealed spiritual treasures are hidden just below the surface of some of those seemingly boring lists and genealogies, as our friends from One for Israel point out regarding the list found in First Chronicles 26. Well, First Chronicles 26 is a chapter of names, which many might overlook, but it has a treasure inside, where it says in First Chronicles 26, verse 4, Obed-Edom had sons, Shemaiah the firstborn, Jehazabad the second, Joah the third, Sekar the fourth, Nethanel the fifth, Emiel the sixth, Issachar the seventh, and Pelathai the eighth, for God had blessed him. To his son Shemaiah were born sons who were leaders of their clans, for they were men of great ability. The sons of Shemaiah, Othni, Raphael, Obed, and Elzabad. His brothers Elihu and Semachiah were also valiant men, all of these were descendants of Obed-Edom. They and their sons and their kinsmen were capable men with the strength to do the work. 62 of Obed-Edom. Well, that would seem to be a dull list of names, right? Unless you know who Obed-Edom is. And in 2 Samuel, we have this amazing story of David trying to move the Ark of the Covenant from Kiriath-Jerim to Jerusalem, and they had the brilliant idea of putting it on wheels instead of carrying it on the shoulders of the priests, as God actually had required, and the cart wobbled at one point. A guy named Utziel reached out to steady it, and when he touched the ark, which you weren't supposed to do, he died on the spot. Now, David felt this was extremely harsh, and he essentially sulked about it for a few months before getting over the incident and trying again, this time taking care to carry it the Ark of the Covenant, exactly the way God had prescribed to be done in the book of Exodus. But during that time when David was sort of licking his wounds in the palace, where was the Ark for the duration of those few months? Well, the Bible tells us David decided to put it into the house of Obed-Edom. David was not willing to take the Ark of the Lord into the city of David, says 2 Samuel 6, 10-11, but he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, and the Ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. So basically, 
Obed-Edom hosted the ark of the Lord for three months, and we're told that God blessed him. But many generations later, if we're paying attention and we remember some of those names from these long lists, we can see that this blessing of God was not merely just a temporal thing for a short time. It was profound, and it lasted for generations. The list in First Chronicles 26 tells us that he had eight sons because God had blessed him, and they were men of great ability, and their descendants were also valiant men, capable and strong in the service of the Lord. Moreover, uh, Obed-Edom, when it says he was a Gittite, that means he was from Gath, and most scholars agree that this means that he was born a Philistine. In 1 Samuel, the Philistines steal the ark and come to bitterly regret it, so they sent it back with five golden offerings, one of for each of the Philistine kings, one of whom was the king of Gath, where Goliath came from. But when we look at the list in Chronicles, we see that Obed-Edom, the Gittite from Gath, and his descendants have been elevated to serve as Levites in the house of the Lord. What an honor! And what great blessing came upon that man and his family. It testifies to the power of God's blessing on whole families and across generations. When God blesses a family, it has a powerful and lasting effect that you might not know about if you always skip those lists in the Bible. So yes, some scripture in some instances is more important than others, as even Jesus pointed out. However, all scripture is God-breathed, and all scripture is advantageous. Now, I imagine that some people will have a knee-jerk reaction to my opinion on this question. Perhaps the same people that say things like, all sin is the same in God's eyes, which I have heard a lot of Christians say in the past, and that's a saying which is demonstrably from the Bible not at all true. You might disagree with me on that. Don't worry, we will have a future episode upcoming where we'll talk about the scriptures that actually show us all sin is not equal in God's eyes. But maybe the people that say that will, again, have a bit of a knee-jerk reaction and will say, of course, all parts of God's word are equally important. And if I haven't convinced you yet that some parts of God's word, all of which are important, some are more important than others, then let me encourage you to try an exercise. Go pull out First Chronicles 6. Read it out loud a couple of times in a row. Uh, we've already read some of it, but let's read another little short section, verses uh, 77 through 80 of First Chronicles 6. It says, The rest of the Merorites received from the tribe of Zebulon, they received Romano in its pasture lands and Tabor in its pasture lands. From the tribe of Reuben across the Jordan at Jericho to the rest of the Jordan, they received Bezer in the desert in its pasture lands, Jetsah in its pasture lands, Kedemoth and its pasture lands, and Mephaoth and its pasture lands. From the tribe of Gad, they received Ramoth and Gilead and its pasture lands, Mahanaim and its pasture lands, Heshbon and its pasture lands, and Jatzer and its pasture lands. Look, that's God's word. It's powerful. It's wonderful. It's, ad it's advantageous and it's inerrant. But is it as useful reading that chapter twice is it as useful do, reading that chapter twice as it would be to read, I don't know, 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection chapter, twice? Or Acts chapter 2, the birth of the church, Pentecost? Or Matthew 5, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount? Or John 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer? Or perhaps Psalm 23, the, the Lord is my shepherd? Which of these chapters, 1 Chronicles 6 or the others I just mentioned, would you want a new Christian to read? Which would you want your kids to read? 
Which would you want yourself to read in your quiet time in the morning? Now, I think the answer to that question is undeniably any of those other chapters ahead of First Chronicles 9 or First Chronicles 6 or First Chronicles uh, 1 or one of the passages of Job's friends. Now, why cover this question? Because it is an excellent setup and foundation for our very next question in episode nine, number five of the Deep Questions podcast, which will likely be out as soon as you hear this one, because I think I'm going to release them back to back. In that upcoming episode, we will discuss and consider which method of studying and reading the Bible is the best. Should Christians read the Bible cover to cover, or is there a better approach? Well, I hope you will join me soon for that episode. I do want to point you to our website. It is deepquestionspod.com, deepquestionspod.com. And one more time, I want to remind you about the conference we've got coming up with Dr. Lacona, June 24th through 26th. It's going to be at Valley Baptist Church in Salinas. You can sign up to come to that conference through our website, vbcsalinas.org. That's the letters vbcsalinas.org. And we would love to see you there. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.